Hey, I'm Adam. And I'm Brian. Of Everyone Has a Podcast, and you're listening to Pop Goes Your World. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 148, Edge of Tomorrow Movie Review. Chris McBride, along with Derek Myers, and this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Derek's on Twitter at Amaron underscore DM, and you'll find me on Twitter at C McBrien. And popgoesyourworld.com is our website with all of our contact information. Derek, what's going on in the world of pop culture for you this week, my friend? Hey, Chris. Well, uh, we, we were unable to record a new episode last week. Yes. So, uh, you know, thankfully we were able to pop up a, uh, a best of, we did. which uh, has some of our trivia segments from older episodes, which I had a lot of fun re-listening to this week. Yep. Summer but vacation gave, and all, you know, summer vacation. Sorry, what's that? Summer vacation, you know, is, is on right now and it's been hard for us to, to, you know, do a show every week, but, uh, we're back in there. Yeah. And, um, so I, it gave me a little bit of extra time to, uh, absorb some pop culture nice. and uh, there's a couple of things that uh, that I wanted to, to talk about so the first one is I find uh, so as we've previously mentioned I'm I'm super nerdy I'm a big nerd there's no there, I mean we're both nerds no, no, more than you for no. a lot of other reasons so one of the things that I'm really nerdy about is comic books and there is a, uh, a television show on Netflix called Titans and it's based on the comic book series Titans or the new Teen Titans or the Teen Titans. It's it's all part of the same family. And the idea is it was released by DC Comics in like the late 70s, early 80s, the original comic book that was. And it was basically all the sidekicks got together to, to have a uh, comic book. So it was called the, the Teen Titans. So it was like. Batman and Robin, it was Robin. It was, um, you know, Green Arrow had a sidekick called Speedy. It was Speedy. It was Wonder Woman had a sidekick. Uh, Wonder Girl was in it. And then they introduced a couple of new characters who have um, who have stood the test of time and become fan favorites. And so finally, after all these years, when, um, you know, Marvel's making so much money doing the Marvel Cinematic Universe, DC Comics has been struggling to sort of figure out how to find their footing in the in the real live action adaptations of their product. They have not really done a great job with their movies with the exception of the Nolan Batman, but with their television productions, they've done a lot better. Green Arrow did very well. Smallville did very well. The Flash is doing very well. Um, and then they did this net, uh, this Netflix show called Titans. And again, it features some of the original characters from the comic book. So it's, it's Robin from Batman and Robin, but he's like grown up. It's the idea is he's like in his early twenties. He's no longer Batman's sidekick. He doesn't really know what he wants to do with his life. And it introduces a few other characters from the Titans comic books that casual, you know, comic book readers may not really know all these characters, but if you are at all familiar, you sort of know where it's going. Uh, I think it ran 11 or 12 episodes for season one. So I, I had a chance to binge watch season one, over the last week. And I really, really liked it. It was, it was quite good. I was, I was, I don't know, I guess I had very low expectations for some reason coming into it, but I really liked it. I thought the casting was really good. And I, I know it was shot. The primary principal photography was done here in Toronto. And so there were some locations in certain episodes where I recognized it, 
And I actually have some friends that work in the movie industry that um, that that worked on the show behind the scenes, like special effects and some of the costuming and stuff. So there was, again, that sort of personal connection to it. So I, I watched the first season. I really, really enjoyed it uh, way more than I thought I was going to. And I'm actually very excited because I know there's a second season. I'm going to go and try and binge through that in the next week or so. So that was um, that was something that I watched that I, I really enjoyed over the last couple of weeks. I have a question for you on that. My kids yes, watch a, a, an animated show on Netflix called Teen Titans Go. Is yep, it associated same, with same that? One. Yeah. Yep, it's, it's the same character. Right. Yeah. There's like uh, Robin. Yeah. 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 And so in the Teen Titans Go cartoon, the, the, mm-hmm. the team is Robin, Starfire, Raven, Cyborg, and Beast Boy. In the TV show, it's those same characters except not Cyborg. So it's Robin, Raven, Starfire, and Beast Boy, as well as a few other characters from the comic books that make appearances in the show. Not every episode, but are there to sort of remind you that, hey, this this uh, franchise actually has a, a pretty deep bench. So that that's something that I've watched that I've really enjoyed. And another thing that I just watched today, actually, was a documentary. It was on HBO and it's called Funny Tweets. It's from uh, it's from last year. And basically, it's about how Twitter is being used by comedians to um, give themselves a reputation, how people who would never otherwise have an opportunity to be professional comedy writers are making names for themselves through Twitter. And they interview all sorts of people who are like, I work for Family Guy. I work for The Simpsons. I work for Modern Family as a writer on their full-time staff because I use Twitter as a platform to demonstrate that I have a good sense of humor that these shows found appealing. It also delves into the darker side of social media and how you say the wrong thing one time and your career can end, but how Someone like the president of the United States can pick your tweet out of the millions of tweets that he gets commented on in a particular day and suddenly go to war with you over some offhand remark. It was really, really well done. It interviews a ton of famous comedians as well as a lot of up-and-comers who are writers behind the scene that you may never heard of. It's called Funny Tweets. It's a documentary. I strongly recommend it. It's very, very well done. Well, I'll have to take a look at that. I wanted to mention a couple of things myself related to pop culture that's in my, going on in my world this week. Both of them are very sad, though. So I'll explain. So both of them have to do with me and my sons. So first, my youngest son and I are re- reading a book together at night during bedtime. Every night when I put him to bed, we usually do stuff like we do like Where's Waldo, you know, and that sort of thing. But for something different, I suggested, why don't we read a book together? You know, it's basically just me reading and him listening, but it helps sure. him fall asleep, you know? Anyway, the book that we're reading is Charlotte's Web. Have you ever read it, Caveman? Uh, I remember reading it for, I want to say like grade three or four. And of course, I've seen the original movie. I think it was a cartoon. Yeah, it was. Uh, let me tell you, it, it is unbelievably sad. Oh it, my God, yeah. Oh, it's about life and death and friendship. And, and as you know, Derek, when I was 24 years old, I lost my best friend. He died from a very rare heart condition that was undetected at the time. And that was right around the time that you and I met and we became friends, Derek. And, but anyway, the, the book Charlotte's Web is all about friendship and what it's like to lose a friend. So I'm reading to my son and then he's like, why are you crying, daddy? <laughs> and I'm just I, I, just, I found it like a great opportunity also just to talk to him 
about life and death and what it's like to lose someone and how life goes on, you know? So it ended up being a great chance for me to try to explain a very difficult subject to a, to a seven-year-old, you know? So there was that. And then at the same time that that's going on, my wife went away for the night. And so my oldest son, he's 11, me and him decided we would have a boys night. And what we do is we usually watch a movie together. And whenever we get together for a boys night, we usually watch Gen X movies. So I usually let him pick one from Netflix or like from my DVD collection or something like that. Anyway, so he really likes Home Alone. So he wanted to watch My Girl because it has oh my Mac- God. Macaulay that Culkin. Really sad too, isn't oh, it? Oh, yeah. Macaulay Culkin. I've never seen it? it, but I know what it's oh, about. Cheapers, yeah. creepers. So he says to me, he goes, I want to watch it because Kevin from Home Alone is in it. Man, oh man, that movie just got me. Now, I, I want to explain a little bit. Now, I had seen this movie back in 1994. I think it came out in 91 and it was on the movie channel in 94. And I remember I watched it right after I lost my best friend, like I mentioned. So that movie just really hit home for me. And I forgot because it's been so long. I forgot how impactful that that movie is, especially to me personally. So until I started watching it this week with my son. So I'm watching. He's like, why are you crying, daddy? <laughs> I'm like, jeepers. I'm like, my God, it was a really sad week in pop culture for me. But but again, I used it as an opportunity as a, for a teaching lesson, you know, because my girl is a really, really good movie to watch and then have a conversation about afterward. You know, kids, kids are going to experience death at some point. And I found it just a really good opportunity to talk about friendship and life and death and how important all those things really are. So all in all, it was uh, it was a great opportunity to have a meaningful and, and I believe important conversation with my son, both my sons for that matter. But it was really sad, <laughs> but, uh, but it was really good. So I was going to say, I remember when I, so I don't know about you, but I remember sort of one of the first times that I had that conversation was when I was much younger, I used to watch Sesame street as many children did. And ah, the character, Mr. Hooper died. That's right. And I remember, at, I remember like reading afterwards, like years later that the writers originally were going to say, Mr. Hooper moved to California or whatever. They were just going to say he left Sesame Street because he moved. And the the producers and the writers of the show at the time, after struggling with this thought, they finally went, you know what? Let's actually just write the reality into the show that Mr. Hooper was an older man and he died. And then explain through the course of the show to young children, basically the conversation you were just talking about, the ideas of life and death and, and what that entails. And yeah, it may be a difficult topic for some kids to understand. And it may, you know, kids may cry when they understand or they, they learn about it. But I can remember that being sort of one of the first times as a youngster that I I uh, had sort of quote unquote had that conversation. Obviously, I, I didn't speak to the television, but I remember after the episodes were on, my parents talked to me about it because they had also read or seen or whatever. It had been publicized, you know, through media that this was going to happen. So I think a lot of parents were ready to have that kind of conversation with their children. So I don't know, Chris, do you remember when you were little sort of when was a similar kind of situation? Do you remember when were you first? I, re- I remember that uh, that, that episode with uh, Sesame street, because I remember there was like Maria and Paul and, and Gordon, and they were all on talking and they were all sad and they were expressing how they were sad, but they were also expressing how they were glad that they had the opportunity to know Mr. Hooper and yeah. what he meant to them and stuff like that. So that would probably be one of the first experiences, uh, for me with something like that. So that's a, that's a good one that you brought that up yeah. anyway, but anyway, I just want to lighten things up a little bit. So here's your Dad joke of the week. Okay, so I figured since we're reviewing a Tom Cruise movie tonight that I would give you a Tom Cruise dad joke. Oh, boy. So here it goes, all right? (laughs) Derek, if Tom Cruise owned a distillery, what would he call it? I don't know. I have no idea. Whiskey business. 
Oh my god! See, I now I enjoy a beverage called Cruisin' Rum, so mm-hmm. that's what I was going to say. You yeah. call it Cruisin' Rum, but I was like, I knew that wasn't where you were going with that. But there yours, was a, your, your answer was better. Oh yeah, thank you. It was it was a bad dad <laughs> joke, but it, it, listen, that one wasn't as bad as the one I was going to tell you. So I'll tell it to you too. Okay, uh, who, oh cares, who cares? Because it's never going to make a PG rated. It's never. It'll never make it, it. will never make it past the censors anyway. So oh anyway, here God. it is. Derek. Chris, every time you do this, I get emails from people <laughs> saying, "What was the actual joke?" And half the time, I don't remember it. Because because okay, the whole thing, go, the go, censors go. will beep out the whole thing. Yeah, and then I, I get will. emails too, and they're like, "What was underneath that censor beep?" I got to know. All right, Derek. <laughs> Why did Katie Holmes divorce Tom Cruise? I I don't even want to know the punchline of this. I don't know, Chris. Because she found out that he'd been in a Oh, 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 oh my God, that's terrible! Oh, 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 oh. oh my God! Rebo Williams, the adventure begins. I'm glad it's called the adventure begins. We're clearly going to get more adventures. It was an optimistically titled movie. It's perfect if you are an 11 year old boy with a big old healthy dose of nostalgia. Oh, rescue me, male hero! I'm in danger. Oh, this is just like the Matrix, only shitty. I felt bad for all the people that were attached to this movie. I'm 50, and I sure hope I don't look anything like Wilford Brimley in Cocoon. Oh my god, I got 90 more minutes of this. Okay, so uh, this week it was uh, it was over to you, and you picked a movie from 2014, as you are wont to do, uh, and you picked a movie uh, from the millennial generation. It's Edge of Tomorrow. I have to be perfectly honest. When you nominated this film at the end of our last show, I'd never even heard of it before. I had no idea this movie even existed until I watched it for this episode. So the movie's from 2014, like I said, it's right in your wheelhouse. Uh, about 25 years past the point when I stopped watching movies, so it should make for some interesting talk for us this week. Uh, movie stars Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt. It features performances by Bill Paxton and Brendan Gleeson. The movie cost $178 million to make, but it only grossed $100 million at the domestic U.S. box office. So that was good for 31st place that year. It was beaten out by such luminaries as Lucy, Lone Survivor, and Divergent. Also a bunch of movies I'd never heard of in my life. But anyway, you felt this movie was important to have me watch and then come on the show here and discuss. So without getting into too much of a deep dive on the movie, because we're going to get into that as we always do, but maybe you can give us a little bit of a quick idea why you picked this movie and why you felt that I needed to watch it. So Derek, take it away, my friend. Okay. So there's a number of reasons I wanted you to watch this. None of them are deep or philosophical, but first of all, I think it's fair to say Science fiction, when done right, is one of my absolute favorite genres. If not my number one, it is definitely in like my one or two or three. And so anytime I could find a a sci-fi movie with an interesting premise that has a decent budget and has decent special effects and just doesn't seem too over the top, I'm already – you already have my money. I see it's 30 seconds of a trailer and I'm like, that's it. I'm in. And then I hope for the best. And I did feel that this movie – checked a lot of those boxes um, from that sci-fi point of view. In fact that you have some major Hollywood stars in this, I mean, like Tom Cruise arguably is one of the biggest movie stars on the planet. So you know that if he's in it, there's a very strong likelihood this movie's going to be decent because he only has a few stinkers on his IMDb. Um, but he does have a few, so you always have to be a little A few good that. men wasn't one of the stinkers. 
No, no. But uh, I mean, Emily Blunt uh, is uh, as an up and coming star. She's been in a lot of great stuff as well. And it, it, this is one of those movies where you have a strong female lead in a sci fi action movie. So that, you know, more and more that that is a real plus for me. Um, you you have Bill Paxton, who, uh, you know, we we talked about previously on a, one of our podcasts when we did the Alien sequel. Um, and again, there's a lot of people in this where you sort of go, oh, yeah, I sort of I know who that is. Oh, I've seen that guy. or Oh, I know her. That kind of thing. So so again, it's starting to check a lot of the right boxes, um, a, as we'll discuss this movie also to a limited degree uh, deals with time travel and and sort of that kind of genre, which is, again, a subgenre of the sci fi genre that I love. So it's already checking a lot of the boxes for me. And it's just in my mind, a great action movie. It's got some great action sequences. It's got some great special effects and shoot 'em up kind of things. But it's not just like a Michael Bay Armageddon type. Let's blow everything up and see how big the explosion can be that the, the special effects really add to the storytelling in in my opinion. So I wanted you to watch this one because the last time I nominated a movie was Pleasantville and it had a lot of really deep meaning and there was a lot of subtext and there was a lot of metaphor and there was a lot of, you know, message coming out of that movie. And I thought, you know what? I want something that's a little more just uh shoot 'em up, have a good time, watch Tom Cruise save the world kind of movie. And I knew I was fairly confident you hadn't seen this. I was fairly confident you probably never heard of this. So I was really hoping that some of the twists and turns that present themselves in the movie would would actually be twists and turns for you. Because one of the things like we did Memento on a previous podcast. And if you knew going into that, that the story is told in reverse, it sort of loses something. So I was kind of hoping with this one, uh, which we'll get into. There's there's a lot of things that are repeated and if you didn't necessarily know that coming in, I think there's a lot of oomph factor the first time you realize, oh, OK, I see where this is going. And 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 so I was hoping that you would, number one, just have fun with it. But number two, that you might actually enjoy it from a craftsmanship point of view, much like Memento. It's like the story's decent. The performances are decent. But as a film, as a way to construct a story, I was kind of hoping that this might sort of parallel that in a certain way for you, where you can be like, even if you weren't in love with what was going on, you could appreciate the creativity that goes into making this kind of movie. So those, all those reasons combined is really why I wanted you to watch this. So without further ado, Mm-hmm. What what did you think? So I went into this movie completely blind. I had no idea what it was about and no idea what happens. And I got to say, two hours later, I still really had no idea what it was about <laughs> and what, what it happened. So you're going to have to walk me through this one a lot, Caveman. And okay. you you'd usually have to do that on a regular basis anyway. Okay. But I'm going to need some help navigating this movie. Okay. But on its surface, after watching it, even if there were questions, mm-hmm. what is your sort of initial impression? Good, bad, somewhere in the middle? It was somewhere undecided. in the middle. I thought it was okay. okay. I thought it was okay. You know, it was somewhere in the middle. So, okay. you know, that's better than hated it. No, I'll no, I, I, no I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that I hated it. Uh, no, I didn't okay, because good. because of the it was uh, in terms of the, of the craft of filmmaking itself. Kind of as you touched on, uh, that's very impressive. Um, this thing would have been a bitch to edit. Um, that's for sure. And you know, we'll kind of get into yeah. that as well. So, uh, so you know, from a movie making point of view, it, it just was really really busy. And we're going to get into that in a bit too in terms yep. of the uh, just the themes and stuff. So, so the and, movie and yep. this movie does touch on a couple of my. Hollywood pet peeves that we talked about oh, in a previous episode, oh, which we'll get to. That would be awesome. Uh, so, so the movie when it when it starts during the opening credits, the opening credits are actually interrupted 
by major news flashes from around the world. And right away, I thought that was really, really cool. What a great way to open a movie. It was right when the logos were coming up and then they just got, they, they, they went out and this news flash came up. So I thought that was really cool. So all over the news is an alien invasion that's happening right around the world. And it seems like there's, they mentioned something about like a new technology or something being used to fight fight the aliens. And it, it seems like the humans are winning and that's what the news is reporting anyway. But as it turns out, the military is just kind of feeding that information to the media because they don't really want to admit that they're actually losing the war with these aliens. But anyway, so Tom Cruise goes to London to work with U.S.'s allies, the British, and he meets uh, Brendan Gleeson's character. And Gleeson tells him that he wants Tom Cruise to go to the front lines in France. He orders him, in fact. He's got to go there and fight on the front lines. And Cruise, of course, refuses. And he even Well, tries no, to- at first he doesn't say he's got to go to fight because if they establish right away in the first two or three minutes, Tom Cruise is a PR person. And he even says very early in the movie, I owned a marketing firm. And when this war happened, I was part of the ROTC reserve and I got called into duty. And they said, hey, you're a marketing guy. We are going to put you in PR. And you see him on television selling the propaganda of this is how we're doing and we're doing amazing. We have this new technology, rah, rah, rah. And originally, Brendan Gleeson tells him, I want you as a reporter to go to the front lines and report what you see. Right. And it's not until Tom Cruise basically says, I'm not having any of that, that he finds himself in a position where he's not a reporter anymore. Now he's got to be a soldier. Right. And so uh, he sends him out either way to go to the front lines. And then he meets Bill Paxton, the late, great Bill Paxton, by the way. Yes. Uh, yes. Come, he, that's what he, he was comes really in. good in this. Oh, he, he was pretty good in this. He, he comes into the movie, he takes Cruz and to have him join him on the front lines. And one thing I want to mention. So, so Derek, when, when Bill Paxton first comes on screen, I notice something and I have a question. The U.S. flag on his sleeve is backward. So yes. what I mean is that the stars are on the upper right of the flag rather than the yeah. upper left. And this yeah. made me think, my wife and I have been watching Orange is the New Black on Netflix. And the corrections officers in that show wear uniforms that also have the backward U.S. flag. Do you have yeah. any idea what is up with that? Americans yeah. seem pretty I know exactly picky. Why they seem pretty picky about their flag. So it seems odd to me that they would have it backward on any type of military or police uniforms in any way. But what is no, it? That is, that is the absolute 100% correct standard. So... Um, the idea is that the American flag should always be heading forward into battle. So think of when you've got an American flag on a flagpole, the stars and stripe, the, the stars are most adjacent to the pole. Now, if you are running forward, carrying that pole and the flag is flapping in the wind behind you, depending on which side of that flag you are looking at, one way it'll look forward, one way it'll look backward. But in either case, the part with the stars will always be more towards the front. So on the military uniforms in the U.S., and I don't know if this is in all branches of service, but I'm fairly certain it is. The mil- the U.S. flag is, I believe, on both shoulders of uniforms. And on the one side, it looks correct. But on the other side, they put the mirror image because it's it's that idea that the flag should always be moving forward. And now that I've mentioned it, you will never unsee that in a military yeah. movie if it's done correctly. I, again, I'm not – 
I'm like 99.9% certain that's the rationale behind it. I have noticed this on many movies before, and I remember looking it up more than once, but I'm quite confident that that is the rationale behind it. And it is hundred percent accurate that uh, it, when it's on the one sleeve, it is going to look backwards. And that's, that's the idea behind why. And it's a longstanding tradition in the U S military. Very cool. All right. Well, thanks. There was an odd piece of dialogue when they met too, um, because Cruz says to him, you're an American. And Paxton's response <laughs> yeah. is no, I'm from Kentucky. Yeah. And I thought that was an odd thing. I, did, I didn't quite, again, I didn't understand what that was. I think all it's about. just a character quirk. Yeah. I don't know. So it turns out that Tom Cruise is, is, is a private. He's not an officer and he's gone well, AWOL. No. But I, I wasn't sure if that he's was true. A private What's that? Because he's been, they claim he's a private. Yeah. We already have established that he is an American soldier and officer. And it's not until he tries to go toe to toe with the general and blackmail him. That the the general basically he even says he uses the term railroaded. He's been railroaded. And Bill Paxton's character, the master sergeant, is told this guy was caught impersonating an officer. Right. He's really a private. Give him the gears. Such so I mean they they just lied about that, right? Like flat out lie. Yeah, I wasn't again, sure if it was you're like a career true military or? guy, you're gonna listen to your superior officer and you are not gonna question what he tells you. Gotcha. Or her, what she tells you. Again, yeah. I need a lot of explaining to get through this one. It's all good. So um Paxton tells the platoon then that they have to have crews combat ready by the morning. So they suit him up in this armor battle suit thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I like what they all get in it. And then I like how all the soldiers are geared up in, the, in these getups and they're all like marching along. And Tom Cruise just tries to walk away from the platoon as, as they're marching. He, he doesn't get very far, but he just like to tries to take off. Right. Yeah. And then that's when you hear someone say, we lost Germany and we lost France. So, you know, the war is not going as well. Uh, with the aliens as the military would like you to, to think that it is right. Mm-hmm. And then they all, well, but they, they show you again in those, that montage at the beginning mm-hmm. with the, with the news reports, yep. you see that the alien meteorite that started the whole thing, I think it said it crash landed somewhere in Germany. And then you see a map where it expands the, through Europe, the parts of influence that the, that the aliens have got. And it's like a red blotch spreading across the map. And they sort of show you that it's, it's large swaths of Europe with basically just the coastline not being compromised. Hmm. Oh, that's right. Yeah. They, they didn't quite get to the coast because they take them and then they drop them out of this plane. And then Cruz lands with all the other soldiers on the beach. And the scene that ensues is basically the Normandy invasion on D-Day, only with high tech and aliens instead of Nazis. Yep. You know, and then you see all deliberate. It's all deliberate, a deliberate parallel by the creators of the film. Oh, for sure. Because then then you finally get a chance to 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 witness the aliens themselves. And they're just these big spider like things with long tentacles and stuff like that. So the question I had at this point was why all the heavy, clunky suits, the the aliens are whipping around like lightning and the humans are lumbering along in these clunky suits with these guns on them. Wouldn't they be better off with tanks or something? The aliens have this amazing range of motion and the humans are basically at a huge disadvantage. Well, I think uh, as they've sort of established uh, or they try to establish through the course of the movie is that the suits basically if if a soldier is capable, the suit will enhance their speed, their strength, their firepower. You can you've got all these guns attached to it. It can do, you know, different kinds of uh, weaponry. 
And through the course of the movie, you start to see different soldiers using different technology with it. At one point, you see Tom Cruise like running super fast to push another guy out of harm's way. So again, I think it's just a stylistic choice of the storyteller to be like, because they do also use use a a catchphrase where they say something like, uh, you know, even a a, an inexperienced soldier when put in this one of these suits within like a day can be combat ready. Which we learn very quickly with Tom Cruise's character. That's not so much the case. Right. But that's how they're selling it. And I think Tom Cruise even mentioned something like that at one point where he, he before he gets Shanghai by the, the general, he says something like, I've been t- I've been recruiting hundreds of thousands of soldiers to come and fight in your war. And it from the propaganda that you see at the beginning, it's like we have these suits and they're amazing. And look, here's the hero of Verdun. She was in the suit for one day and she won the war for us kind of thing, which we learn is not quite entirely true down the road. But at the time, those characters believe that to be true. So in the middle of all this fighting on the beach, Tom Cruise comes face to face with this blue alien and he shoots it and he gets its blood all in his face and it melts his skin away and he dies. I was like, what the hell? And well, he's he already w- got a wound. They established that he's been shot in the belly or something. Right. And then, and then he wakes up and he's back on the tarmac starting his day all over again. Bill yes. Paxton meets him and they go to the barracks and the platoon gets disciplined for gambling and all that. So I realized, okay, it's a time loop. So it's just like, it's like groundhog day, but instead of waking up to Sunny and Cher every morning, you wake up on Juno Beach with aliens instead of Nazis, right? Yes. So this yep, is going that's on. That's exactly. Yeah. Yep. So the day just keeps repeating and, and he tries to warn them. And like you mentioned, he's a PR guy that was able to convince basically millions of people to come and join the army. So he tries to use those PR skills to convince the platoon that he knows their fate. But it doesn't work. They just duct tape his mouth and they take him right back into battle again. And he dies and it starts all over again, right? And they just keep going back to Normandy and shooting at these these bug things with the machine guns. So it's basically Groundhog Day meets Starship Troopers. That's what I was thinking at this point. That, that's exactly the description yeah. that I read on one of the reviews. They said that was pretty much like the elevator pitch of how do you sell this movie is is it's Groundhog Day meets it meets Starship Troopers. It's exactly it right Very cool. So, you know, then that got me thinking when I was thinking this. So so Gen X movies tend to have lower level concepts in them. And millennial films tend to have higher level concepts. So for example, like a millennial movie, they reset the day in order to conquer aliens through a time loop, you know, as, as, as the dominant life form on the planet, trying to outwit the, the extraterrestrials, a Gen X movie would be Bill Murray and Harold Ramis join the army. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, it's just such a different concept. That's what I found when I was watching this. Yeah. Well, and I mean, this, this the idea for this movie, um, it, like it's based on a I want to say it's either I think it's a Japanese graphic novel or a graphic. It's Japanese, but it was a book or a graphic novel or it was a book that was adapted to a graphic novel and then adapted to the movie. So um, one of the reasons the, that the the monsters sort of look the way they do is it's it draws from the idea of the Japanese anime where they always seem to have like these long stretching tentacles uh, and that kind of thing. But um, yeah, it's. Uh, it's certainly more of a quote unquote high concept movie where you need to, once you understand that the story is, is happening over and over again, as a viewer, you start to look for those little details. How do I know this is the same? You try and look for things that are different. And then you, much like the character are experiencing these, these loops over and over again. And you had talked about editing earlier. I, I think that's one of the things this movie has does very, very well is if you're going to shoot the same scene over and over and over again, where only one character is expected to do anything different, it 
it's going to be boring for the audience. So the director, I read some stuff. The director even said like, it's almost like getting to reshoot the scene over and over until you get it perfect. And it's like, every time they, they revisit the, the, the barracks, for example, it's like the camera's at a slightly different angle or focuses on a slightly different character. And it's Mm -hmm. not that they shot it once and they use 12 different cameras. They literally shot it 12 different times from 12 different angles because there are obviously subtle, subtle differences in the performances by the actors, but they're close enough Re, you know, re-loop to re-loop that you realize, oh, okay, this is the actor redoing the same thing. And um, and it's interesting. I mean, I've, you've seen this as we've talked about before. Groundhog Day obviously had this same challenge. Um, there was a, an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation where there was the same idea where they relived a time loop. I think in the Star Trek show, they redid it three or four times over the course of the, the one-hour episode. But it was that same idea of how do you show the same scene over and over again differently but to still try to make it interesting and and the editing of this really really helped that well basically every day ends with him dying and then starting over again and i thought it was funny one time he even just gets hit by a truck he's walking bang like oh starts over and then uh he keeps running into emily blunt on the battlefield and then one time she realizes that that he's in a time loop and because she says come and find me when you wake up Yes. Right. And then he starts that day. He he hides the card game so the, the platoon doesn't get caught. And, and you realize his action changes the course of events. So he has some influence. You know, it's not just all blind fate. Right. And which then, is funny because that's exactly what the the master sergeant played by Bill Paxton says, you know, where he talks about like there's no such thing as luck and and our fate is not predetermined. It's like you have he has this whole speech that is very much in your face about the whole concept of the movie. So it's interesting when characters talk about luck versus fate versus you make your own decisions versus your decisions are made for you. It, I, this is one of the things I always find fascinating about time travel stories is how they handle this particular idea. I thought it was interesting too, that, you know, he keeps dying and stuff. He needs, so after he's talked to Emily Blunt, uh, he needs to go and see her, right? So he tries to escape by rolling underneath the truck and he just gets squished. <laughs> and then so he has to keep trying it day after day until he gets the timing just right. And that's yeah. the day that he gets through, right? And then, you know, of course, he, he meets her and then she believes him because she, I think she used to be trapped in the, in the in the time loop. So she gets it. But um, anyway, so she wants him to help her locate and kill, I believe it was called the Omega Yes. Right. And but she has to train him to be combat ready. So we get this whole montage of him training and he does it over and over because he just keeps dying during training until one day he only breaks his back. So then she shoots him. And and that's when you realize he has to die or the day doesn't reset. Right. 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 And then, yeah, they, they again, any good sci fi movie, especially any good time travel movie has to establish the rules. They either spell out the rules of how this is going to work or they say right at the beginning. To hell with the rules. We're going to do whatever we want. And you you do one of those two things. And this movie, I felt, did a pretty good job, although it was a little complex, um, of explaining the rules where they basically said, number one, you have to die to reset and wake up yesterday. And number two, if you ever get a blood transfusion, you're going to lose your power because the power is in the blood that you absorbed when that first time you died, the monster blew up in your face and it's, it's bloody acid stuff sort of absorbed and burned into you. So – you know, again, they've established the rules and much like any good story when you, you know, I think I've said this before, it's writing 101. 
if there's a shotgun hanging above the fireplace in act one, by act three, that shotgun better go off. And so very much the same idea with this kind of movie. They establish the rules because clearly it's going to be important down the road. These, and it eventually is. Yeah, these trippy sci-fi movies, though, they have some odd rules. I, I yes, will say that. But I thought it was interesting you mentioned the transferring of the blood because Cruz at one point says to her, he says, maybe if I transferred my blood to you. And she's like, nope, tried that. He's like, well, maybe if I transferred myself to you in some other way. (laughs) She's like, no, I tried that too, like lots of times. So it's played for humor. But here's the part I don't understand when you mention the rules. So he relives the day every day, but she doesn't. So how does she know that she has had sex with him over and over again? Because No, 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 not with him. She doesn't say with him. You learn that she previously had relived an earlier day in the war. Oh, like I see. the day that the day where she is considered the hero where, Hey, she shows up on day one and kills all the bad guys. And everyone's like, you're awesome. And then she says at one point that she had to watch her friend die over 300 times. So, you know, she relived that day at least 300 times or more. And I think that's the implication is when she Got was it. reliving her okay. day over and over. That's and over. when it happened. Yes, that's. Oh, and, and so it's, I don't think there's any implication of that, or it just shouldn't be any idea that, that she's had sex with Tom Cruise. Oh, okay. that right. She's implying that she's that's what I thought. with that's somebody what I else. Because, yeah. I mean, because no one else in the movie experiences the deja vu, right? Only, only they do. Correct. Um, so anyway, so they, th- this is another thing. So they can't move forward with any plans to kill the alien, the, the what's it called again? The, the Alpha and the Omega. The Alpha and the Omega or whatever it's called. Uh, because they have to figure out how, how they're going to, they have to get off the beach of Normandy. And we spend about 30 minutes of the film watching them Going on the beach, dying on the beach, not getting off the beach. But here's the thing. Why not just find a way to not go to Juneau Beach? And then well, they I mean, could have just eventually went, what they do, right? Yeah, but then they, they, they would have just thought of that right away and thought, well, if we got to get off the beach, how about we just not go to the beach? You know, and then it would have saved 30 minutes of my life, too. You know, watch this. Like, I just would have made it that much shorter. Um, this movie, for me, comes off as one of those first-person shooter video games. Absolutely. It's supposed to. And because and, when you die in those games, you go back and you start over again, right? Just that, like this was movie. The con- that was the concept for the initial book. The author has ah. gone on record. Like he said, when they asked him, how did you come up with this? He said, we're in, a, we're in a world where video games make more money than movies. More people play video games than go to the movies and watch TV. And one of the, the things with a video game is you have save points along the way. And if your character gets killed in a level, you go back to your save point and you can try it again knowing what you know about that level. And that was his whole concept of, well, let's do that into a movie. You've got to storm the beach. Okay, well, there's monsters there and they're going to ambush you and they're going to be at this point and that point. Well, you're going to reset back to that X point and do it over and over again. So so I'm glad that you felt that way because I think that was the whole mm-hmm. point of what the the original writer was trying to to get across is you can take the video game medium and borrow ideas on how that medium works and turn it into a pretty damn good movie. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I recognized it being looking like a video game, but I wouldn't really know all the other stuff you mentioned because I don't play any of those first person shooter games. I never have. Wait, you don't, you I don't respawn will. in pong when you lose a level. No, you should know. No. For my birthday last year, a friend of mine got me one of those retro video game units. It's got games on it like Dig Dug and Burger Time and Galgat. Now those were video games, my friend. Let me tell you. Uh, so anyway, so in the movie, they steal the, the car with the RV trailer attached to it and they race away. And they run out of gas and they start walking through this field. And I'm thinking, why is he still in the clunky armor suit and she isn't? And then as soon as I'm thinking that and I make a note of it, his suit runs out of battery power. So he just takes it off anyway. 
Yeah. So I don't know. Just lots of weird things were happening. I didn't get. So anyway, they find a cabin and there's a helicopter, but he won't get into it. And she thinks it's because he's scared to fly. But it turns out that he's relived the day so many times. He knows that this is the point where she dies. Right. So this is where I'm confused. I need help again. So she can sure. die over and over again on Juno Beach with the alien Nazis, but she can't die here. Well, so his whole idea was if he can get to this Omega and destroy it, there won't be a reset. So he needs to make sure that she goes all the way to the end with him and lives. Otherwise, she will be dead permanently. And he's come to he's come to like her. Right. She's been oh, training him over and over. He's, he's become good friends with her, even though in her mind, she's only known him for a day. He's now known her for if you think he's. It doesn't explicit. It doesn't explicitly say how many times he's respawned, um, but you've got to assume it's a few hundred, given his competency level uh, as a soldier. So you think he's met her and spent every day with her for what is effectively a year, three hundred or more days. So he's he's become friends with her. He likes her, um, and he doesn't want to see her dead. He feels that she's a good soldier, and obviously we've already established that um, the world thinks she's a great hero based on her previous success. So he, he doesn't want her to die. So that, that's sort of the point he's making is I can go on by myself whenever I want. But if you're going to die along the way, I'm not interested in having that victory. I need a victory where you and I both live. Again, these loopy time bending movies have some very odd rules, I tell you. That's right. So anyway, so he takes a helicopter alone and he goes to where the head alien is, but it turns out it's a trap. So right. they, they go to Gleason's character to convince him to give him parts they need for the scientist guy to make some kind of contraption or something to blow up the alien or something like that. And then Tom Cruise has a vision that the head alien is under the Louvre in Paris. So now I'm thinking it's basically Groundhog Day meets Starship Troopers meets the Da Vinci Code. Yeah. Yeah, I was I was hoping when they got to the Louvre, they'd meet like Tom Hanks with a really bad haircut or something. I don't know. But uh, anyway, so the army, I, I think at this point, the army captured Tom Cruise and they give him a blood transfusion. Yeah. So as you had suggested, they once Tom Cruise finally takes the helicopter and goes to Germany by himself to do what is essentially a scouting mission. And you figure he's already established he doesn't want to live a real full day without without Emily Blunt's character. So your my expectation anyway was he's going to go. He's going to verify that this thing is there and then he's going to blow his brains out so that he has another day to potentially come back and relive it. But when he gets there. The device isn't there and he realizes, oh, my God, the vision is a, is a trap and the monsters don't initially kill him when he shows up because, again, by now the monsters have – you assume the monsters have realized this guy can sort of duplicate their, their time looping power and they don't want him to be able to do that. It, it's not clear whether or not the monsters themselves have this same power anymore or whether Tom Cruise's character has stolen it from them or whether he – now shares the same power that that's sort of a little vague, but they don't immediately kill him when they certainly have that opportunity to do so. But he eventually does kill himself, wake up again and then realize, OK, our plan that we've been doing for hundreds of days now is not going to work because our objective has changed. And that device they pull out of the safe uh, that the general has is a device that the scientist has told them, oh, well, I made this device and it's supposed to you like jam it into the bad guy. And once it interacts with their blood, we'll be able to see what they see. And he's like, well, I already have their blood in me, so I just need the device. And when he does that and he sees the Louvre, that <clears throat> that is sort of the last day of the reset, because at the end of that sequence, they get in a car crash. He's bleeding out. He's got a wound in his leg. 
Emily Blunt's character is unconscious. She got hit with the airbag when the car crashed. And then Tom Cruise wakes up and he's been given three pints of blood and he realizes, oh, crap, I got to this is my life from now on. I can't relive this. But they have already established that this is still the day before the attack on the beach. Because like you said, you know, when they after he first woke up, he decided this time around, we're not going to wait a day and go on the beach. We're going to try something totally different. So they've got a few hours to do it. And then that's when the last half hour of the movie, they're like, okay, this is it. We don't have any more respawns. We're out of extra lives. This is it. If we do it, we do it. And if we don't, we're done for it. There's no more do-overs. I feel like my head's going to explode. Like <laughs> So in the loopy time-bending movie world, this means he can no longer go back in time at this point. So it's for real Correct. from this point yeah. forward. Because she actually tries to kill him when she comes to when, – when he's like on the, on the stretcher and he's tied down. And she comes in and she's like, I was out of these restraints in like a few minutes. What's taking you so long? And she tries to stab him and he's like, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. They gave me a blood transfusion. This isn't going to reset anything. Don't kill me. Seems like a lot of overblown gobbledygook to me. I don't know. I just at this point, I'm just getting confused. So anyway, they they take this aircraft thing and he's in the back manning this big gun. And so, again, it's got the whole video game thing going on. Right. Oh, for sure. And then he goes under the Louvre and he blows up the alien leader. And then he goes all the way back to the beginning when he first came to London. But this time yes. the aliens are defeated. And yes. then, here's the thing I don't understand. Then he goes to see Emily Brunt's character and the movie just ends. Yes. Somewhat thankfully, I think, but it's kind of an odd ending. And the, the whole thing just kind of confused me. So can you help me understand the ending? Sure. So I, again, I had to look this up. I've seen the movie a few times now. And so I, I just wanted to sort of make sure that what I was following sort of jive with what, you know, the mass media is following. So <clears throat> the explanation that I read that I, I that I liked that I felt sort of worked for me was we've established you know, before the very end of the movie, we've established that Tom Cruise no longer has the power to reset his own life. He's got to live the life that is now in front of him. The reset power is gone. When he destroys the Omega monster at the end with the grenade, you see the little pins floating up and stuff. He is about to die. He's about to drown, right? He's been holding his breath underwater and he's sustained this wound. And, but the bombs go off and the main monster is, is about to die. Or it does. The Omega dies. And <clears throat> when the alpha monster tries to reset, as we know it has done in the past, as we've established that it can do, the 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 sort of the feeling is that it basically says, OK, I don't want to die. We're going to go back 24 hours. The problem is the brain of the monster has already been killed. So really all the monster has done is pushed it 24 hours into the past and it dies 24 hours earlier than when it was exploded, which is why when Tom Cruise wakes up on the helicopter, there's a media release that says like, oh, uh, we don't know why, but the monster is dead now and it's a victory and all the rest. We're just going to go into Europe and shoot them and destroy them. And that that'll be the end of it. Basically, they've established it's a hive mind and the hive mind has now been defeated. I don't know. This is still making so, my head hurt. I don't know. Yeah. I don't, so overall, so, um, so about, yep. sorry though, but about the end, mm -hmm. then the question is, so Tom Cruise didn't in initialize or trigger the reboot to go back. This was triggered by the monster, but because he was cl in close proximity, you see him sort of absorb the blood again. So he has the consciousness and the memory when he wakes up of what had happened, all those loops previously. And I guess what he's trying to figure out is 
he was underground, underwater in this explosion. And Emily Blunt's character was also sort of in that area. Mm -hmm. Maybe she absorbed some of this as well. Maybe she has these same memories and has remembered the last loop. And so I think when he goes to see her, that's what he's trying to establish. Is this the first time she's ever seen him? Because to her, this is the first time through the, through this part of history. Mm-hmm. Or does she remember? And they it they seems pretty clear that she doesn't. Yeah. Well, they cut to black before it's firmly established. But I thought that she kind of looked at him and didn't know who he was. She, I thought she said, "Who are you?" or something. I honestly I don't remember. But yeah. I think the the thing I read was like her character smiles or something where she never has in the past. So it's not clear, but it's implied that maybe she does. And I know they're working on a sequel to this movie, so I think they're probably going to say that she does. But at the time when this came out, you had no idea if there was going to be a sequel. Right. So, again, it's I, I love a movie where the ending is not explicitly told. Yeah, like you, you and Yancey both. It's great. The Inception ending with the spinning top where you don't know, is the top still spinning? Is it not? I love movies where it's up to you to decide. The, they've set out enough clues. They've set out the rules. You decide the ending you think fits best. And until they do a sequel and establish a definitive answer, it's totally up to you to figure it out. And so I, I actually really like that about the ending of this. I know you and Yancey are like that. Both of you. You like those endings that are kind of like ambiguous in trying to think. I don't know. I like more of a, a nice bow on the end that it all kind of comes full circle and we get an ending. Uh, so you want to give me a rating on this movie out of 10? We usually do that at this point. So what would you give it? Mm, I'd probably give this an eight. And honestly, of, of all the movies we've done that I've nominated, this is the movie I've actually seen the fewest number of times at probably, I think I had seen this movie three or four times before this one, whereas almost every other movie I've recommended, I've seen at least a dozen times before I suggested you watch it. So that, that I'm going to leave that at an eight. And I have one more thing I want to add, but let's get sure. to yours. So I want to do an eight. I'm going to give it an eight out of 10. What do you give it? I probably give it between a five and a six. I really? like it. Yeah, because yeah, I mentioned before, like I say, but coming into this movie, I'd never even heard of it. And coming out of this movie, I could care less if I ever did hear of it. So, I mean, it didn't really impact me either way. So it was just oh. kind of so mediocre. Two things I want to bring up. The first yeah. one is about the pet peeves that I said earlier. Mm. One of my pet peeves in movies is the idea that people don't wear hats. And I'd said this before, like Game of Thrones, they're north of the wall and it's freezing, but you can't have Jon Snow wear a hat because then you can't see his beautiful face and his lovely hair. Yeah, he takes his hat this off this whole movie. movie where yeah. all, the, all the soldiers have helmets with visors that obstructs their face. Mm-hmm. And very early on into the first battle, Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise takes his off. Yeah, and and I thought that off. too. I and thought then that every too, time yeah. after that, the guy even asked him, he goes, you don't want a helmet? And he goes, nah, it just gets in the way. Oh, so, I'm a movie yeah, star. Of his beautiful face. <laughs> you can't block that. That's the moneymaker. Jeez. Oh, Again, that's one of my big pet peeves. Yeah, the other thing I want to mention is the movie is called Edge of Tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And when it came out in theaters, as you've established, it did okay, but it didn't do gangbusters. No. I mean, I think it did 300, 300 million world, 370 million worldwide, yeah. 100 million domestic. So, right. I mean, it, it lost money, money domestically, yeah. But it didn't make ridiculous money. But when it came out on video, DVD, excuse me, and Blu ray, it made a lot, it did a lot better. It found a better following, and largely because. They sort of rebranded the movie. Although the title is Edge of Tomorrow, the tagline was always live, die, repeat. And when they released it on video, at the top of the bit, on the poster of the video on the, the DVD and the Blu-ray, in big, bold letters, it was called live, die, repeat. And then at the bottom, in small letters, it said Edge of Tomorrow. And so with that type with and again the the producers were like no 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 the title is still definitely edge of tomorrow live die repeat is just a tagline but with the tagline that 
big, yeah. it very clearly established what this movie was going to be about. And more people found it on home media than hmm. they did in the theater because it so was it more clearly defining what the movie was about. And huh. so I, I think that's an important distinction. And so the sequel they're working on is tentatively titled Live, Die, Repeat, and Repeat. Mm, Whether or not they stick with that title, I don't know, but that's the t- that's the working title. And so far, Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt have said they will definitely be si- – they have signed on for a sequel. And the director, Doug Lyman, uh, said he is in for a sequel as well. So I think once COVID sort of gets under control and they start going back to making movies, we're going to see Tom Cruise in live, die, repeat, and repeat in the next <laughs> couple of years. Oh, lucky for us. All right. Well, on that note, let's have some fun. With Caveman. Now, this week, you made me watch a weird science fiction movie. So this makes me think, Derek, that you like weird science fiction movies just in general. So therefore, you should have no trouble whatsoever naming the following six science fiction movies. Okay, and but what we're going to do is you're going to name those six weird science fiction movies by taking a seat in the winner's circle of the $100,000 pyramid. To get to the top of the pyramid, you need to name six science fiction movies, but the common thread here is that they all have a weird premise, okay? Okay. The only clues that I can give you are members of the cast or the director, okay? Okay. If I give you the director, I'll mention it's a director, okay? Okay. So you got it? So I give you the cast members and or the director, and you name the weird science fiction movie. You ready? Okay, give me a second. Give me a second. Let me just pump myself up here. Strap yourself in. Okay, yeah. No hands, no hands. Go. Go. Marcus Chong, Matt Doran, Joe Pantoliano, Gloria Foster. The Matrix. Yes. Yes. Tom Hardy, Cillian Murphy, Tom Berenger. Oh, um, um, Inception. Yes. (laughs) Douglas Rain, Robert Beatty. Daniel Richter, William Sylvester, Gary Lockwood, Keir Dulia. I don't know. Pass. Stanley Kubrick was a director. Keir Dulia. I have no idea. Pass. Pass. Kay Hotry, Lynn Gorman, Leslie Carlson, Peter Dvorsky, Debbie Harry, James Woods. Debbie Harry from Bondi? Video draw. Yes. Maggie McCormie, Don Pedro Colley, Donald Pleasance, Robert Duvall, George Lucas was the director. THX 138. Yes. <laughs> Drew Barrymore, John Larroquette, George Gaines, Bob Balaban, Blair Brown, William, William Hurt. William Hurt. William Hurt. Blair Brown. Wow. Uh, I don't know. Pass. Pass. We'll go back to the other one. one. Uh, Kier Dulia. Stanley Kubrick. Director. Kier Dulia. Oh, man, we ran out of time. 
Oh, jeez, you missed. I thought you would get all six of them. I didn't know who any of those people were. So the Cure Dulia movie with Stanley Kubrick as a director was 2001 A Space Odyssey. Oh, jeez. Before my time. I mean, I've seen it, but it's before my time. And the one with Blair Brown and William Hurt was Altered States. Altered States. Oh, God. 1980. Oh, jeez. I was just talking to somebody last week at the trailer about that. They mentioned, oh, there's this weird movie I saw with, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I I said, oh, yeah. They they said it's called Altered States. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's with Blair Brown and William Hurt and Bob Alaman. How do you know so much about movies? Well, that's kind of what I do. Hey, Chris, one one thing uh, that I I forgot to mention when we were talking about the movie. For sure, of course. So we compared it to um, Groundhog Day. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea of this, this repeating the day over and over again. Um, I want to say, and I, I know I mentioned this on the podcast before, but there's a book that I read. Uh, it, the book came out in 1987. It's called Replay. And the author is called, his name is Ken Grimwood. And it's this similar idea, except instead of just reliving a day, you relive your entire adult lifetime. Oh, and, and the book, it's, it's only about three, 300, 350 pages. And, um, like the first hundred pages, you live the the character lives his full life, and then the next like fifty pages, he relives his adult life again, sort of going, oh my god, like because again he doesn't really understand what's going on, and then like the last third of the book, he re they 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 start to fast forward, right? Like they relive it in broad strokes because now you sort of know the specifics, but it is exceptionally well done. It's, it's a very good read. It's a little dated now just because a lot of the stuff they talk about um, in the eighties, like the idea is that he resets when he dies in the late eighties. So he lives through like the late sixties, the seventies and the eighties. So for younger readers, it might seem a little more dated, but it, it was really, really well done. And you got to think this mo- this book came out before groundhog day, I'm sure it wasn't the first one to come up with this idea, but it was it's very well done. It's a very interesting read. I've read it a couple of times. I recommend it all the time to people. It's it's really so if this sort of concept is something that you think you might be interested in and you're a reader, I strongly encourage you to look for the book. It's called Replay by Ken Grimwood. All right. Well, we'll take a look at that. By the way, uh, your pyramid, you got 50, 150, you got $400. So uh, not bad. Your check's in the mail. Okay, good. All right. Uh, so next week, we're going to come back with a top five list. So we'll uh, we'll come up with a topic for that uh, for next week. That's for sure. And if you want to reach out to us on Twitter, you'll find us at Amaron underscore DM. That's Derek. And at C. McBrien, that's me. And popgoesyourworld.com is our website with all of our contact information. Shoot us an email. And we'll get back to you. In the meantime, this is Chris McBrien for Derek Myers saying thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show. 